Good morning, Sis Sylvia Bay and uh, brothers and sisters in the Dhamma. Before we start the talk, let us do uh, our normal puja. Salutation to the Triple Gem. Arahang Sama Sambuddho Bhagawa Buddhang Bhagawantang Abhiwademi Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Sangang Namami Preliminary Homage to the Buddha Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Going for refuge, Buddhang Saranang Gachami, Dhammang Saranang Gachami, Sangang Saranang Gachami, Dutiampi Buddhang Saranang Gachami, Dutiampi Dhammang Saranang Gachami. Dutiampi sanggang saranang gacami, tatiampi buddang saranang gacami, tatiampi dhammang saranang gacami, tatiampi sanggang saranang gacami. Let's take the five precepts. Panati pata veramani sikha padang samadhyami Adinadana veramani sikha padang samadhyami Kamesumichachara veramani sikha padang samadhyami Musavada Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhyami Sura Miraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhyami Recollection of the Buddha Itipiso Bhagawa Arahang Samma Sambuddho Vijacharana Sampano Sugato Loka Vidu Anuttaro Purisadamma Sarati Satta Deva Manusanang Buddho Bhagavati Recollection of the Dhamma. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo 
Sanditiko akaliko ehipasiko opanaiko pachatang veditabo vinyuhiti. Recollection of the Sangha. Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Ujupatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Nyayapatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Samichipatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango Yadidang Chatari Purisa Yugani Atta Purisa Pugala Esa Bhagavato Sawakasango Ahuneyo Pahuneyo Dakineyo Anjalikaraniyo Anutarang punyaketang lokasati Sadu, sadu, sadu Good morning again, brothers and sisters in the Dhamma Today we have our sister Sylvia Bay Who will be speaking to us about Mahanama Sutta we're going to do a bit of a meditation first, right? Before we start. So, I would like to invite everyone to close your eyes, make yourself comfortable, relax. I'm going to guide you through a short meditation. Actually, I would prefer to call it a short reflection to help your mind uh, feel a certain degree of calmness before we start the Dhamma talk. So today we're going to do um, two things for the meditation. First, sit back, relax, scan your body. Meaning to say, let your mind flow through your form, starting from the head. Scan slowly down the face, down the shoulder. As you scan, you have a sense that there is a breathing. There is breathing in the background. It's right there, just breathing. The form is breathing by itself. Let it be. So that's rising and falling it's calm feel good about it it's rising and falling 
as you watch this rising and falling, I want you to just reflect on these words. Reflect like this. I am a seeker of the Buddha's Dhamma. In this life, I walk in search of the Dhamma path. To the end of this life, I am dedicated to upholding the practice. I may or I may not see the Dhamma in this life. I may or may not taste the Dhamma in this life. but I will never stray from this path which is the most beautiful of gift from the Buddha. I am not perfect but as I try to understand the practice I've become kinder gentler, more considerate of others, more respectful of others. I still have anger arising, but anger dissipates faster. I harbor no ill will, and I wish no one harm. I'm learning to be content. Contentment is joyous. Contentment is peace. My life is blessed. I live in a place I feel safe where I can take care of myself and my loved ones. And now I have the Ma. Life cannot be more blessed. I can't express my gratitude enough, the joy that I feel. I wish that all my loved ones could feel as I feel. I would like to wish all beings in all directions, big or small, seen unseen, young and old. May they all be well and happy.
May all beings be free from suffering, be free from pain, be free from fear, that they may live in peace and harmony, and may they all experience the joy in the Dhamma. As you get out of your meditation, share your joy, share the merits of a wholesome sitting with all sentient beings, with all your heart, wish for all beings to be well and happy. And slowly, make your way out of the meditation. Okay, today we're going to do the Mahanama Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya, AN 8.25. It's a beautiful sutta about how to cultivate correctly for, for, for Buddha's advice to the lay people, but I'll explain further. So first we go through the outline. I will give an overview of the Nikayas just to help people understand where this sutta sits in the context of the canon, Pali canon. Okay? Then we will go through um, the sutta, starting with me explaining why I picked this sutta to begin with, the key learning points. And then finally, at the end of this talk, we will all reflect for ourselves where we stand in terms of being a Buddhist, a Buddhist follower, lay follower. Where do we stand? Are we on track or are we off track? Huh? Okay, the overall Pali Canon. If you, I know there are many words here, but essentially there are three key components. It's called T. Pitaka, ti means three. Pitaka is baskets. So in the Pali Canon, there are three baskets of teachings. First basket is called the Vinaya Pitaka on the extreme left, comprising five books. We're not talking about that today. We are going to focus on Sutta Pitaka, this causes. This uh, causes said to be five collections, depending on which country we go to, Sri Lanka, Burmese, Myanmar or Thailand, the number of books under Kudaka Nikaya changes. So this one, Sri Lankan, 15 books. If I'm not wrong, I think the Burmese has 17 books, so depending on which, which country. Um, if you look at the Pali words, this Diga Nikaya, can you see? Um, some reason the mouse disappeared. This is Diganikaya, long discourses, meaning all the collection there, very lengthy. Majimanikaya, middle length, medium length. So the, 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 the length of the sutta a bit shorter than Digga. Samyutta is link. Anguttara is numbered. Kudaka, a bit like minor collection, 
miscellaneous. So there are 15 books there. Okay? So today, Mahanama Sutta is under Anguttara Nikaya, and it's said to be book of eight. So therefore, there should be eight items that the Buddha focused on, eight teachings, if you like. Okay? Okay, why this sutta? We all know that the Buddha gave thousands of discourses in his lifetime. Some discourses, or most of his discourses, were given to Sangha members, monastic, and they are practicing for realization of Nibbana. But there were also several discourses that he delivered to lay people at their request. So the lay people who visited the Buddha will go to the Buddha without appointment. They don't have to make appointments to see Buddha. If he happened to be around, they can just go up to him and say, Sir, Bante, could you explain A, B, C? And he would oblige. Buddha was extremely obliging. They can stop him midway and he would oblige. That's how compassionate he was. So this sutta was one of many suttas that was, the, the, the question was posed to the Buddha by a layperson, and he uh, provided details, he gave details. I chose this sutta also because I thought it would be good for all of us to have a sense of how, to, how does one lead a meaningful lay life? filled with spirituality and purpose, meaning to say cultivation, mental cultivation, is not just for monastic, it's also for lay people. And if we cultivate our mind according to the Buddha's teaching, we can also live in bliss, with ease, happily. Okay. Eight qualities for cultivation, which we will discuss in detail shortly. So the sutta started with Mahanama the Sakyan. You see here, Mahanama the Sakyan. Visiting the Buddha, who at, whom at that time was living uh, in the Banyan Tree Park in Kapilawatu. Okay, let's just say about this, huh? This Mahanama is a first cousin, was a first cousin of the Buddha, elder brother of Anuruddha. Now, who is Anuruddha? If you're familiar with the history of Buddhism, you will know that at the Buddha's deathbed, there were all these disciples, but there was only one who witnessed the Buddha going through the different jhanas and eventually passing into Parinibbana. That monk, that Sangha member, was Venerable Anuruddha. So this is the same Anuruddha. Anuruddha and Mahanama were very, very close brothers. And the two of them actually had a discussion which of the two will represent the family. Because the Buddha's family was large, there were many Sakyan brothers, Buddha's father had other brothers, and all the different arms of the Sakyan family 
actually sent representatives to join the Sangha, the cousins. They all took they, uh, uh, quite, the different family, they had cousins that joined the Buddha. And this was in the earliest, earliest day of the Sangha, okay, of the, of, of the Sasana. And Anuruddha and Mahanama had this discussion, and Anuruddha uh, said, Oh, you join the Sangha, I, ca I can't do it. Mahanama said, Okay, then you take over running the family, you handle all the, the plowing, the farming, and there are all these family matters you have to take care of when I join the Sangha. Anuruddha thought about it and said, Oh, that's very hard work. I will join the Sangha, you stay behind in the lay life. So the Mahanama then got stuck staying behind the ley line to look after the family. So that was a, that was a, little, bit of a, a little bit of a background. Why do I introduce this? Because actually, Mahanama also wanted to join the Sangha. He was very curious about the practice, which is the reason why, of all the Buddha's first cousins, this was the one who always go to the Buddha and ask for teaching. And this teaching today came from that conversation, one of those conversations between the cousins. Huh? And so you can read, Mahanama supported the Sangha when they visited Kapilawatu. And there were, as I said, several suttas. I, I just cited a few of them. In your free time, you can go and check this out. And they are called Mahanama Sutta. So this is not the only Mahanama Sutta, there are others. Huh? Okay, now we go into Sutta proper. And Mahanama asked Buddha, Bhante, in what way is one a lay follower? So how do you know, on what basis do you call yourself a lay supporter? Buddha's reply was straightforward. When one has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, in that way one is a lay follower. So we say, oh, okay, it's straightforward enough. If I go to Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and I bow and I say, I go to you for refuge, that's it. Does that count? In a way, yes, but not enough. So let's just go through what does it mean by going for refuge. This is an extremely important word. The word refuge, the Pali word saranang, actually means all of these. Protection, help, shelter, refuge. Implied in this word, implied here, is this notion that daily life as it is has some degree or much degree of problems, difficulties, danger, agitation, etc. Daily life as is has problems, a lot of it. And to see you go for refuge imply that it's not just problem, it's a lot more than that. You actually perceive that there is danger. If you had no danger, if you don't have this perception, if you feel everything is fine, honky-dory, where would you be looking for refuge? Why would you be looking for a safe haven? If you were feeling really good and uh, you, in, in your perception, life is great, then you just continue as it is. 
Why do you look for why do you look for help? The point here is you're looking, you're going to someone for help. So you have to sit back and you ask yourself, why? Uh, why why is it in Buddhism, in the Buddha Sasana, it is called going to the triple gem for refuge? Saranang. And if you remember the, the way we chanted, Buddhang, uh, Saranang, Gachami. Gachami means I. I choose to go. I have to take the initiative to make, to take that first step, make that approach, and go. So there is a decision point here. It is not something you tell your kids. Okay, say, say, everybody say, I, I go Buddha Dhamma Sangha for refuge. It's not you telling people to do it. It has to be willingly done. There is a decision point made consciously and say, I recognize that there is a before life where I feel I'm lost. I'm not sure how to do these things. I, 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 I sense danger and problems. So I go to this triple gem for help, for assistance, okay? And you must believe that when you do that, you can actually experience comfort, peace, security, freedom, happiness, etc. So to go and do something in anticipation that there is a solution. So I think in many cases, when we take this refuge, we may not realize the significance of that gesture. We may not realize it we, because, it's, because it's in Pali, right? Very rarely you have people taking refuge in English or in a language that you're very familiar with. It's usually in Pali. So sometimes we, we just do it thinking that it's a form, a process, a ritual without realizing that there is tremendous significance. I said the historical context of refuge. And I want to go a little bit deeper into this so that you can understand where I'm coming from. You see, in the time of the Buddha, there were many teachings, all kinds, from two main sources. Huh? The traditional conventional religion, which we now call the Vedic faith, meaning the teachings, the rituals, the beliefs, sits on the Vedas. Then there were everyone else, everyone else who disagreed with the conventional faith, the mainstream religion. So all these fellows who disagree with the Vedas then came up with their own explanation of the nature of the world and their prescriptions on what they must all do. And in order to be part of whichever group that you, to, in order to join whichever group, you would have to say, okay, I now apply for membership to join your group. So everyone has some kind of a, a uh, before and after transition. Before you are not my member, now that you have gone through the ceremony, you're now my member. For Buddha, that transition is I go to you, your teaching, and your, your practice for refuge, for guidance on how to overcome 
Dukkha. Everybody joins somebody, some organization, in the hope that they will find the answer for salvation. For salvation. Eh? I, I, I use this word salvation because in Dhamma, we also have something like that, but it's not quite salvation. It is liberation. The way that we talk about it is liberation. So, okay. Everyone will go to somebody and say, I will join you, and after I join you, I expect results. Okay? Same thing goes for the Buddha. You join the, you, you join the sasana in anticipation of results. It is not, I go join so that I can wear an identity badge and say, I'm a Buddhist. It doesn't work like that. You actually join because there are things to, that you're supposed to do, and then whatever that you seek, will be realized. So I kept this little phrase in the Dhammapada verse, 190, 191, and this phrase was said by the Buddha himself. He who has gone for refuge, the Buddha, the Dhamma and his teaching, and, and, and the Sangha, penetrates with transcendental wisdom the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, cause of Dukkha, cessation of Dukkha, the Noble Eightfold Path leading to the cessation of Dukkha. So when you go for refuge, the intent is to understand Dukkha and cessation of Dukkha, to cultivate so that that can happen. And if that, if your understanding comes to fruition, your wisdom matures, then you will really experience cessation of Dukkha. That's the intent of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Okay? Now, everyone had this. Huh? When you join a particular school, there will be a set of prescription. What you should do in this school. So for the Buddha's sasana, you want to know what are your rules. What should I uphold? What should I follow if I am your disciple? That's why the word virtuous, sila, here is very specific. You tell me, this is your description of nature and, society, and reality and so on and so forth. Then how do I practice? How am I a good follower? The Buddha, and this is the five precepts, the Buddha said, lay follower abstains from the destruction of life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, false speech, and from liquor, wine, intoxicants, which were the basis for heedlessness. By this, you are following the teaching, the idea here. You're following the teaching. Okay? And I said, it seems straightforward. Because when we go to a monastery or a temple and or at home when you chant your, your prayers, you do your, your morning chanting, you will take the precept. I will abstain from this, 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 that, that, that. Sounds easy enough. But actually, in the context of Buddha's time, there were many schools, many schools, that actually had no prescriptions on morality. They... But they practically said, there is no such thing as karma, you can do whatever you want, and enjoy your life as it is. 
and don't worry about the effects. So there were many schools in the Buddha's time that had no moral rules. Buddha was made very clear, minimum, this is minimalist approach, eh? minimum, the five precepts. You have to abstain from the following because in your life as a Buddhist, you don't want to inflict any form of pain or suffering or hurt. Don't cause anyone to have tears. You want to abstain from all these massive actions that could bring pain and suffering to another. Okay? Now, the Vedic faith of the day talk about sacrifices. And usually, the Vedic faith, when they talk about sacrifices, it sacrifices other people, animals, other beings. And Buddha says, no, sacrifices is the sacrifices you make. You have to make your own sacrifices. And what were they? You see, you think about, think in your own mind, think about it. When you get upset, when you get upset, the natural instinct is, I want to score. I want to hit out. But if you say, I will not score, I will not hit out, actually, you feel like you are compromising. There is the element of, hey, I've got to swallow this anger, man. I've got to swallow it. This is not easy. Oh, yeah. Sacrifices are never easy. So you have to swallow it. Swallow the anger, let it go. Forgive, embrace. Those are difficult. So let's say you say, okay, this person, I don't like the face. But you're practicing Buddhist, you cannot show your, your anger towards someone just because you don't like, just because your feelings are not good. Then you just show. You don't. You have to have consideration for the person's feelings. Consideration, respect, kindness for the other individual. And so you sacrifice. You make that sacrifice. You eat into your own interests and your own, your own preferences to accommodate the other. That's all. So that's why I said here, the sacrifices of, a Buddhist, of the Buddha's follower was to forego his own defilements of greed, anger and delusion for the larger good, for the welfare and the benefit of yourself and for others. So what makes you a virtuous lay follower is not just to uphold the precepts, but to make sacrifices for others and for your own good. So you control, contain your anger, pipe down your loba, your greed, spend time reflecting on the Dhamma, those are part of the practice. Okay? Part of the practice. Then they came this long, long way, huh? long question. How, how, Bhante, does a lay follower, a lay follower practice for his own welfare but not for the welfare of others. In other words, in other words, where do you go wrong as a practitioner, as a lay follower? This actually means 
Where do we go wrong as a lay follower? In relation, with, in relation to another. The Buddha said this. I'm going to go through this. I want you to bear this in mind because we're going into each of them and elaborate. Buddha said, when a lay follower is himself accomplished in faith, but does not encourage others to accomplish faith. When he is himself accomplished in virtuous behaviour, but does not encourage others to accomplish virtuous behaviour. When he is himself accomplished in generosity, but does not encourage others to do that. And it goes on. When he himself wants to see bhikkhu, but doesn't encourage others. When he wants to hear the good dhamma, doesn't encourage others. When he himself retains in mind the teaching he has heard, but does not encourage others. When he himself examines the meaning of the teaching and have retained in mind, but does not encourage, but does not encourage others. Uh, sorry. But, uh, but when he himself examines the teaching, the meaning of the teaching that have been retained in mind, but does not... Is there a repeat here? Six and seven. Okay, never mind. Where he himself has understood the meaning and the Dhamma and practices in accordance with the Dhamma, but does not encourage others. So here you have these eight points that the Buddha highlighted. And we'll go through in detail. Huh? Being accomplished in faith. The word here is Sadda Sampano. Sadda is faith. Sampano, completed. Has a lot of it. Accomplished. So here, it's very clear the Buddha was not talking about blind faith. In the practice, we are all encouraged to probe and ask questions. And the Buddha even encouraged his monks to handle questions and answer. I talk about a balance between being open-minded and critical thinking. We will go into that in a while. Faith of a follower must sit on the right understanding of the triple gem. The deeper and more profound the understanding, the stronger the faith. Okay. For many of us, when we are new to the teaching, Perhaps there is a part in us that thinks that faith is really form. You bow deeply, you go through the motion, three times a day you chant, you make your chanting, and so on and so forth. These are forms, only form. But in this teaching, the focus is not on the form, the focus is really on understanding. Okay, And in the subsequent slide, I will actually show you just on the basis of the triple gem, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, we actually have to spend our time reflecting on the qualities and thinking about what these triple gem means. So that's why I said there is an appreciation of the triple gem at different levels. You can set off having the conventional, superficial appreciation, but it goes down to really understanding it deeply, what each of the gem stands for. Okay? Let's do a test. Let's just do a test. 
of the three gem with the Dhammasanga, the one that's easiest to un understand, presumably, right? The one that's easiest to understand should be Buddha. Hmm? So what do you think? When we say appreciating Buddha at one level, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? At the first level, would you say, this is correct, that he was the founder, the teacher of the doctrine? Would you say this is correct? Makes sense, right? Huh? So this is very straightforward. Minimally, when you are asked, so what's Buddha? Uh, he's a teacher and the founder of the, of the Buddhist faith. Okay, simple enough. More importantly, more importantly, this is something to bear in mind, is the belief that he was enlightened. Enlightened to ultimate reality, enlightened to a state called Nibbana. If you had stopped at level one, founder and teacher, that's it. There's a very superficial, very simplistic understanding. It is not good enough. On what basis do we say that he's the teacher? On what basis? There has to be teaching what? So, we follow him because we believe that there is the conventional reality and there is an ultimate reality and we believe that what he experienced and what he saw was not, was not something that the rest of us could understand until we see it for ourselves. That's the part that we have to understand and realize. So it is not enough to say Buddha taught Dhamma. It has to be Buddha was enlightened to the Dhamma and he taught something that he saw for himself. And we believe that when we take on the same teaching, we will be able to experience the same insight. The same insight. That's why we go into the qualities of the Buddha, because in the qualities of the Buddha, he achieved something completely inconceivable. Inconceivable. You never even thought about it. He achieved that. And then the rest of us, we say, okay, we believe you. Then along the way, as we embrace your teaching, we incorporate the teaching into our life, we too will witness in real time what he saw. Okay? And so what were his qualities? We believe that the Buddha had destroyed defilements and gained liberation from the samsaric circle, cycle. This part, the reason why I am flipping them one by one is because I don't want you to read the text. I want you to pay attention to each quality carefully. Because if you meditate and you want to use faith as an object for meditation, this is actually how you are supposed to do it. Know the quality, understand it properly, reflect on that quality, then you ask yourself, 
how much of it have you done with respect to that quality? So, arahan, right? Itipi so, bagawa arahan. He's worthy, he's noble because he had destroyed defilements. So, defilements here are defined as your loba, greed, dosa, anger, moha, ignorance, uh, delusion. Delusion. And you ha he had destroyed these defilements and therefore he was able to break the cycle of rebirth and death. Death and rebirth. Okay? Sama Sambuddho fully enlightened to all the principles governing spiritual life. In other words, he knew how to complete the spiritual training. What makes a practitioner? How can a practitioner break out of the habits of the regular mind and be able to penetrate into the ultimate insight? He knew the training methodology. What must be done? Part one. Part two, the entire domain of cognizable phenomenal, in other words, how your mind works and what your mind is capable of seeing for itself. The entire spectrum of what a mind can do Buddha is fully enlightened, was fully enlightened to them. So everything that he taught, he had personally witnessed. Whatever that the mind can do, he had gone through it. That's the power of the Buddha. Okay? Vidya Charana Sampano. Fully accomplished in wisdom and conduct. I stress the symbiotic relationship between wisdom and moral behavior, wholesomeness. Just remember this. A true practitioner must be both wise and deeply compassionate, fully wholesome. There is no such thing as superior in wisdom, inferior in conduct. There is no such thing, okay? If the person is believed to be very wise in the practice, but the conduct leaves much to be desired, I would strongly advise you put a question mark on the so-called wisdom in the practice. It cannot be. Buddha was very specific. The two of them go in tandem, hand in hand hand in glove, together. If you have perfect conduct, it is also a reflection of wisdom. If there is perfect wisdom, the person will live absolutely no, you will have absolutely no reason to doubt his practice because he is a very wholesome person. So for those of you who believe that you are making significant progress in the practice and the training, Ask yourself this, how much of the loba dosa moha have you, been managed, have you managed to trim? If you say that, oh, my trimming uh, is so-so, 
then I will say that um, maybe your understanding is also so-so. Okay? Sukata. Sukato. Sublime one. Well gone. The idea here is he had travelled well along the Eightfold Path. There was a beautiful practice. And the rest of us, when we are practising all this, his teaching, you have to bear these qualities in mind because you are also cultivating these qualities. Okay? Loka, we do, knower of the worlds. So there are different worlds that we're talking about here. There's the world where beings arise. After they die, they come again. They come again in different worlds. Buddha knew them all. Then there is the world of different dimensions, world systems, all in measurable space and time. Buddha know them all. And the world of formations, how our mind keeps creating and creating, he also understands how that works. No world of worlds. I put them all together because can uh, um, he's the unsurpassed trainer of tameable people. Now, tameable people, okay? What does that mean? You see, there are people who don't want to learn, who don't want to train. People who don't want to learn, don't want to train. What can the Buddha do? So in, all, in, 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 in our practice, it must be something that you want to do it. If you say, I seek the Dhamma, and I'm sincere in my search, and I will try my best, Buddha will do miracles there. As long as you want to, he can, he can help you achieve it. So in his time, there were people who had low intelligence, uh, in, they, could not, they, they could not remember his teaching, they had no training, no education. They come from nowhere. They came from nowhere. They ran into him, asked for his help, and voila, they got it. That kind of, there's all kinds of stories in this time, all kinds of people. Age, doesn't matter from the youngest, which is about seven, to the oldest, which is over 80, who is over 80. Age doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Training doesn't matter. Caste system doesn't matter, nothing matters. As long as they wanted, they went to him, they sought out his help, it will work. Look, there was even one who's a serial killer. It's a celebrated, our celebrated serial killer, Angulimala. Even he got it, but he wanted to be trained. He wanted the training. It took him a while, but he got it. And there were the ones who were executioner, hunters, acrobats, theater, I don't know, performers, all kinds. They all could do it. So he was unsurpassed. He was a very skillful teacher. And he trained beings that could be seen and beings that could not be seen. So teachers, gods, and humans. He himself enlightened, he enlightened others. Blessed one is a title given to him in whole, holistically. Eh? Now, you look at these qualities, you reflect on these qualities, and what it means actually is the more you begin to understand the Dhamma, 
the more these qualities make sense to you. That's what it means. They are not just the Buddha's qualities. Buddha, as the fully enlightened one, had these in perfection. But as we progress along this journey, and if you are really, really gaining insight, your wisdom is slowly evolving and maturing, you too will begin to appreciate these qualities that are beginning to surface in yourself. That is why there is that expression, right? When you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. These qualities are actually also expressions of the Dhamma. And so as you begin to understand, you begin to understand the Dhamma, you begin to really understand what these qualities mean. So I'll give you an example. Just the very first one, Arahan. Destroy all defilements. As you cultivate, you realize that whatever degree of akusala arises in your mind, that much dukkha you will experience. Your dukkha is very much an expression of the akusala, the unwholesomeness that arises in the mind. So if you are successful in trimming the akusala, destroying the defilements, elevating the defilements, right? If you are successful in that, you will become more and more noble. See that? The more you understand the Dhamma, the more you begin to understand how the mind works. You understand why the practice must be like that. There is no compromise to the training formula. You begin to understand these things. So you see, Samma Sambuddho, right? You are not Samma Sambuddho, of course. But the knowledge and the practice, how they come together, why they click like this, how it has to be like this, all this you will know. You will see for yourself. And then you don't doubt anymore. You don't doubt the method. You don't doubt how it works. So all these qualities, as you reflect, you must start to see them as part of your evolving qualities. Now, in this dispensation, using this Buddha's training method to see the, the, the Dhamma and taste Nibbana, means you will never be a Samasa Buddha because you have learned it via his training method. But you can still be enlightened. So you become a Buddha because you have awakened. You have been enlightened. You are one who knows and understands. But you're not a Samasa Buddha. You're not the Buddha, the, the beginning, the founder of a dispensation. You can't do that. Okay? And it goes on. Huh? We have to continue. <clears throat> now, we're talking about Dhamma at different levels. So, superficially, at the first level, what is it? Doctrine of the Buddha captured in the canon. So, in the Theravadin tradition, we say the Pali canon. Huh? This one, you must at least know. 
that it was the Dhamma is a doctrine of the Buddha, and the Dhamma had descriptions of realities, training instructions on how to reshape your lenses, reshape the way your mind works, the way your mind thinks, outline goals of practice, etc., etc. There are all these, all these objectives covered by the doctrine. And the doctrine does all these. This is at one level. The ma also is also the nature of reality. As you begin to understand the Dhamma, you begin to realize that the Buddha's teaching actually explains the nature of reality. It's not magic. It's not something metaphysical. It's really reality of the world as perceived by the mind. There is the reality of how the mind works and the nature of the world out there as the mind perceives it. Okay? They are also the qualities experienced by the practitioner and these qualities actually, as you begin to understand the Dhamma, you experience these qualities. You experience the Dhamma's qualities. This is how you understand reality. You realize that the teaching covers the spectrum. So when we say excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent in the end, so the word swakato means well expounded, perfectly delivered, perfectly taught. And therefore, the teaching, and this word always comes out, is excellent in the beginning, the middle, and the end. It reflects the practice. Excellent in the beginning is sila, which is morality, which is restraint, learning to tame the unwholesome instincts of the mind. At the middle is if you can tame the unwholesome instincts of the mind, the mind becomes steadier, more peaceful. It doesn't drift all over the place. There is a sense that the mind becomes present. Watchfulness becomes present. And the end is the wisdom that arises from the training. You have sila, you have samadhi. Eventually, there will come this understanding in gradual steps, but your understanding will grow. You do not start by the other way. I learn all these things. It, it, won't work, it won't work as well. I learn all these things, but you, if you don't practice, if you don't act with restraint over your unwholesomeness, if you spend no time in meditation, no time, you spare no time, you don't do it at all. You are just putting all your eggs into the learning baskets. That is not wisdom you will have. That's knowledge. You have lots and lots of knowledge. But no real wisdom, real appreciation of what the demand is. Okay? So, swakato, if, if you are a student of the Buddha, you will believe that there is nothing deficient in the teaching. Nothing at all 
is missing from his collection. Everything needed for enlightenment is found in the teaching. You must believe that. So if you start from the point where I don't even know what's in the teaching, then you haven't really gone for refuge to the Dhamma. Okay? You really have to know what he taught in order to have qualified under this category of gone for refuge in the Dhamma. It goes on, Sanditiko, you see? Whatever that he has taught, if you incorporate that into your daily life, a point will come when you begin to understand what the teaching is and you see the effects. From the understanding, you see the effects for yourself. So this word, Sanditiko, the effects of that teaching known by direct experience. There is no Dhamma, Buddha's Dhamma, there isn't Dhamma without it being testable and experienced. It can be experienced. That you haven't experienced speaks more about the practice, your practice, than the Dhamma. Dhamma is not, it's, it's really describing nature of mind and how you transform, change it so that you have a different experience of life. Put it in very simple words. Let's say, uh, let's just say, you got upset about something and as you think about what upset you, the more you think, the angrier you get. Then you remember the Buddha said, restrain, let go of anger, bring out metta as much as you can, reflect on contentment, reflect on faith, cultivate kanti. You, ref you remember all these advice that he taught and you say, okay, that's it. Buddha said so, I will do it. So you try. You reflect, you cultivate, you see, the Buddha can put up with nonsense, I can, he had deep compassion, I will cultivate. Then you begin to notice that as you talk in this wholesome way, the anger that you have starts to dissipate. It starts to come down. It starts to dissipate. Isn't that directly visible? When you understand and you apply, there is a natural transformation in the mind. That transformation is directly experienced by you, the individual, who remember to apply. And this is just one part, one part of the teaching. There's so much more about the teaching, okay? And all of them, testable by practice, known by direct experience. Akaliko experience is immediate, you see, the notion of time requires some construction. Happen already, not yet happen, not it's going to happen. You know. It's a mental construction of sort. The ma is right now. You experience it, it's right now, and when you are going through the experience, time is lost. Okay? 
When you have an experience of the Dhamma, it will hit you in the face, and as you are experiencing it, your mind stops its construction process, and because it stops its construction process, it loses time. You are not caught up in time. Time passes. You are present. You become, in that moment of the experience, timeless. It's a very magical experience, isn't it? That point when you experience this, my gosh, this is a Dhamma, timeless. When you have one experience with the Dhamma, there is a part in you that say, I want to know more, I want to learn more. And if you are consistent, you find that the mind learns and learns more. So this thing about inviting, actually it's not inviting other people to come. It's drawing you to look deeper and deeper into the demand. Okay? So we all think that inviting means, oh, you all come and see for yourself. The Dhamma draws you in to go and examine it deeper and deeper and and <laughs> what happened to my rest of the words? <laughs> okay. And as you go deeper and deeper into the understanding, you, you begin to really experience change. This whole notion about applicable is it's it's built on the dhamma is constantly enhancing so if you look if you, all of you have gone through your your own training and practice you will, you will begin to realize that you never stop at one point one full stop if it's truly an experience of the dhamma you will keep going on I want to see more. I want to understand. I will change. The mind will start to evolve. It starts to change. Leading to change. Further and more changes. It, it, it becomes progressive. Okay? It is progressive. And all of these experienced by the wise for himself. All of these qualities. So, in your practice, in your meditation, in your reflection of the Dhamma, if you find that all these qualities are present, you had a Dhamma experience. If any of these qualities is missing, then that experience is incomplete. You will actually have them all. And at the point when you realize what is going on, at that moment, you are the wise because you understood what's going on. The wise means you understand what's going on, you had the correct takeaway from the experience, and it brings you so much fulfillment and joy. Okay? Uh, I will also add this. If you go through an experience and you find yourself having all these wow, wow, you know, this wow, wow experience and goes, yes, this is a Dhamma, it's so beautiful, but I don't know what's going on. It's possible, right? It's like, wow, I know I saw something, I understand, but I don't know what's going on. So then it would mean that you stop halfway, akaliko, and stop, really. 
or maybe inviting and you get more and more dukkha. But the point here is, if you stop halfway, you don't quite understand what's going on and you have to spend a bit of time reflecting on it, that's okay. That's perfectly fine and it's perfectly natural. But the reflection must come. And you may want to go and talk to a, a, a teacher, or you, uh, someone, a senior, whom you believe might have had a similar experience. It is where the kalyana meter and your teacher comes in, the wholesome friends and the teacher will come in to help you understand what's going, what, what you have experienced, whether your conclusions, you must have your own conclusion. Uh. After you have had an experience and then your conclusion is, I don't know what's going on, can you tell me? That doesn't work. It has to be, you say, okay, I think it means this, and then that helps your teacher or your, your kalyana meter to help you along in the understanding. Okay. Appreciating the sangha at different levels. Okay, what's the first level of understanding here? What is the sangha? Monastic order that wears the robe, follows the training rules as laid down by the Buddha. Fair. So there's usually, oh, sangha are the monks. And then we put a full stop. Actually, if you remember that, that chant, the, the uh, homage that you pay, right? Sa waka sang ho, that phrase. And it runs throughout. Yeah? Supatipano bhagavato sa waka sang ho. The word sa waka, one who listens respectfully. It is a disciple who follow the teaching closely. It is not a fly-by-night disciple, someone who wears the robe and declares, I am a disciple. It's someone who is very committed to the practice and he follows the teaching of the Buddha closely. Embedded here is one who is sincere, one who is dedicated, who is obedient. In the emphasis of the, the, the training, eh, the word obedience pops up here and there. And there is a reason for that. If you do not, if, if, if desiring to follow the advice and instruction, if this desire to follow advice and instruction is not a habit, you, you don't have that. People tell you to do something and you go, why? Ah? Must I? I don't like that. Can I do it like that? You ask for discount. Then you are not a sawaka sangho. You're not a sawaka. You're, you're not listening closely. So some, someone may say, oh, you want us to be what? Blindly followed. No, not really. It's a balance. If you recall what I mentioned earlier, there is a balance between being receptive and open-minded, but yet preserve some judgment. So what is this judgment that you must preserve? It's wholesomeness. If in the training, everything I ask you to do is wholesome, it brings welfare, it brings you relief, you can follow. 
But if a piece of advice leads to agitation and the advice is for you to become more akusular, then that's where you go, hey, something is off here. Leh. I, 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 I need to think about this a bit more carefully. So this, the, the, that measure you have to be careful of is really about wholesomeness. So if a practice is wholesome, beginning to the end, just do it. There must be a reason for that. Okay? In the homage to the Sangha, that stanza, there is this phrase that says that four pairs of individuals, so four pairs, four pairs, eight individuals. So four pairs, eight individuals refer specifically to the Arya practitioner. Arya means the ones minimally who have entered the stream and they are heading towards Nibbana. Basically, the individuals who have understood what the practice is and they are dedicated to upholding this practice for Nibbana, for realization of Nibbana. Okay? Now, again, we're going to look at the four qualities highlighted in this chant and bring them all up together. Practicing the good way, practicing the straight. Uju is actually straight way. So, su patipatno, uju patipatno. What's the difference? Su patipatno is training by the eightfold path. So, the eightfold path is the good path. Uju is how you apply and they apply. These Sangha members, they apply properly. They don't ask for discount. So this is the Eightfold Path and in the training, properly applied. Absolutely. Okay? And they are practicing with the clear understanding that they are going for Nibbana. That's why, that's why the Buddha said the four pairs and eight individuals. Because only these guys know how to choo -choo 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 all the way home, you see. The rest of us will have to like, oh, try very hard, try very hard, and we, until we stumble into the, the, the stream itself and then we're okay. And then we know how to go home. It's like, it's, it takes a while of getting there, but oh, we get it. You've, with faith, anything is possible. Then you have this one, Samisipatipanno, practicing the proper way. This one had to do with restraint. And th there is a part here that says, in whatever that I do, I have to be... Uh, what's that word? I can live up to... I can live up to the practice, to the community's expectations of me. Hiri otapa, in other words. Here in the fourth one, the hiri otapa is tight. Now, if you look at these words, right, what does it say 
about Sangha. Here, it's very clear, Sangha is practitioners. Practitioners with wisdom and conduct. So the, eight, the nine qualities of Buddha that we talked about earlier, this is where it starts to surface. This is where it starts to surface. So if you put all three together, right? Buddha, the teacher, Dhamma, the, the teaching, the training methods, Sangha are the ones who apply it. You, and you put all three together and say, okay, now let's look at these three as a force within, because they all must, come, must go in, within. Buddha is, as you train, I said earlier, as you train, you begin to experience the qualities that we dis use to describe Buddha. You become, you become endowed with wisdom and conduct. You begin to understand the worlds, lokavitu. You begin, you, you know that you are, you are treading on this good path to the best of your ability. So, sugato. You see what I'm saying? You begin to realize that all the qualities used to describe the Buddha is actually a description of a top-rate, dedicated practitioner. It will start to surface. And if you are practicing correctly and you're practicing well, you definitely would become aware of the Ma, what the teaching is about, and the teaching comes alive for you. That's why timeless. You are inspired, inviting. You apply and you see the change. The Dhamma comes alive. It is no longer Dhamma, the book. It is Dhamma in the mind. And then you realize that you have to practice as he had described. Su patipano, uju patipano, nia patipano, samisi patipano. It has to be like that. This is how you are supposed to apply the training. So it's not describing things out there. It's actually describing a method of training and the change that comes about as a result of completely embracing the method. Only then would the triple gem becomes a true refuge. Okay? It's when it becomes a true cosmic level refuge. See, not world, world not good enough. Cosmological level. Okay? Remember I said there were eight, right? So this, that was one. Now we go into two. Accomplished in virtuous behavior. I said it's not just about upholding precepts, right effort, right effort. Remember this, prevent what is unwholesome. If it's not there, don't let it come up, prevent them from coming up. If the unwholesome mental state is already present, you must abandon it, it has to drop. So when you're not mindful, when you're not mindful, it can come up. When you are mindful, there should not be akusala in the mind. That's what it means. So what kind of... This is a practitioner template, right? 
all practitioners starts from no akusala. It is the regular person caught up in the world that will really nearly drops into akusala. And then before they know it, they're at two, abandoned. If you are a good practitioner, it should be prevent. It shouldn't even come up. You understand that? You know, all of you who think that I'm a good practitioner, oh yeah, but I always drop the akusala. You number two already, what number one? You're already at A, not P. So I will say, today you're great, C minus. If you are A, A, you, you know why C minus? Because there's C and K somewhere, right? A plus practitioner is the K. B practitioner is the C. Actually, C practitioner is that P. Lah. Your A is the C minus. That's why I say the A is the C minus. Okay, let me explain what it means. Huh? P is to prevent Akusala not there from surfacing. A is, Akusala is present. Now you are trying to drop, drop, prevent, prevent, drop it, drop it. Okay? C is, Kusala is not there. You bring it up, bring it up. But K, Kusala is present. You, you preserve it, you hold it. I prefer to use the word proliferate. Proliferate what is wholesome present. But using Yen's words, this is to help people remember, and it helps, I think. It helps people to remember, okay? And, and what it means is, if you are really a good practitioner, you should be walking around with wholesomeness in the mind. It should not be neutral, neither nor. It should be wholesome in the mind. So wholesome in the mind means what? It means... Your Brahma Vihara, the Metta, Metta. That's why we want to anchor your mindfulness on Metta. So that in normal, under normal circumstances, Metta is spontaneous. It's always there. And you know, you look at someone, the mouth is not smiling, the energy is all stressed, and the mental state all stressed. Definitely not in the state of wholesomeness. So must train, must train to... If you're a practitioner, you train to make sure you're wholesome all the time, okay? Metta is the first line of defense, the very first line, and the easiest to bring up. So, metta. Right? So, if you backslide into unwholesome, it means that your practice has suffered already. It's not very good, huh? Okay, you do all these wholesomeness, to, you strengthen this wholesomeness so that it's possible for the mind to constantly go into a state of steadiness. When I use samadhi, I don't use it as I close my eyes and I sit, that's samadhi. You can have samadhi in daily life, in a, in a maunda sense. What it means is your mind is not constantly drifting all over the place. And... I I'm, I'm telling you this, huh? I assure you this. If you stay wholesome, the mind will stay present. I'm telling you that. If you stay wholesome, meaning if you're constantly experiencing metta, the metta becomes your anchor for samadhi. 
you can actually have the mind present a lot of the time. If you see my mind drifts a lot, then my rejoiner is, then there is a lot of akusala going on which you don't even realize. He said, no, I'm not very akusala. I say, yes, but there is a lot of wanting. There is a lot of I want this and I want that. Because it's the I want this, I want that that provides the battery for the mind to keep drifting. You don't want that mind to drift. You want the mind to be more present. You keep the mind on wholesome mental state. Whether it's faith, it's patience, it's giving, it's giving a, a chaga, generosity, it is uh, metta. You keep your mind on any of these mental states, when they are present, the mind doesn't drift. It will not drift. It will stay put. Okay? And when it stays put for long enough, you become aware that there is no dukkha. Your cessation of dukkha, there is no dukkha. Why? Because there is no craving. Wholesome mental energy present, there will not be craving. Then you say, yeah, but I feel a bit of craving there. That is because you want the wholesome energy. You want the metta. You, and you might even want people to acknowledge your metta. Hey, I, I spread to you so much metta. Why you never smile back? Why? Uh? Why you never, hello, acknowledge? It's because you want. You want uh, a kind of acknowledgement that you have been wholesome today. That in itself is unwholesome. So you must do without expectation. Okay? Chaga. Okay, this is a <coughs> stanza lifted from Anguttara Nikaya 5.47. And this we're talking about Chaga Sampana, Sampano, accomplished in generosity. And the Buddha said this. So I want to read this to you because we all think we are quite Chaga. We all think that. We like to believe that minimally we're not stingy. Look at what the Buddha said about chaga. Noble disciple dwells at home with a heart devoid, devoid, empty of the stain of miserliness. Not even a stain. So every time you want to give something and there is a voice that comes out that says, no need so much, you don't have ready. Point one, the first characteristic not there, because there was a stain of miserliness. Freely generous, meaning freely generous and open-handed, you put them together, it means you are not discriminating. Why do I say that? People I like give more. Society I support give more. There are these society, I don't know what you do, don't give, something like that. So, it's not right or wrong. It merely means that our mind makes judgment. It's constantly judging. And as long as the mind judges, then your giving is not freely. Your giving comes with strings attached. Attached to you approving of them. Okay? 
delighting in re relinquishment, what it means here is that, you see, the normal human, when they accumulate, they like. Huh? The normal conventional person, when they, they go for what, what do you call that? Uh, retail therapy, right? Retail. So when you go shopping, you feel good. Uh, this is accumulation. Here, it's the other way around. When you give, you feel good. When you give, there is this joy that comes out. Don't know why, Le. the more I give, the happier I am. Uh, correct. That's how it should be. The giving brings joy. Okay? Devoted to charity, there's a part in you that is so happy you are in a position to help someone who needs help. The word the, the charity here implies they need help. And you're very happy to do it. Delighting in giving and sharing. So you put the characteristics together, they're not easy, you know. Your regular chaga is not the chaga that is accomplished. You may be chaga, but your chaga is situational chaga, conditional chaga. Situational, my mood good, I give more. Conditional, my mood bad, I give none. Both the same. Lah. Or I give to the people I love, I give to the, this, this sangha member I love very much, I give more. This one, I don't know what you are. You're not even sangha. No need. Lah. So your mind has this kind of discrimination. Your chaga is limited. So essentially what it means is the chaga is limited by your mind. Chaga limited by mind. So if the chaga is limited by mind, your chaga is not pure. It's not with ease. It doesn't flow. Okay? And I said, and this, this, line, this line is cute. I, I like it very much. All roads lead to chaga, right? This, this line. Actually, what it means is this. At the end of the day, your entire practice, entire practice, sits on chaga, the ability to give. You want to, and there are suitors. Eh? You could wait for my book to come up, but there, is, there, there are suitors where the Buddha specifically said, those without chaga can't even enter first jhana. Those without chaga can't even enter stream. Can you imagine? Why? Because chaga actually means there is a part in you that put aside your own desire, put aside your own interest, put aside the self, that self-ish part of you, the self-ish part of you has been set aside. Only when you set that aside, is chaga possible? Pure chaga. So, and you think about this, you think about all your akusala, all the akusala, huh? whether it's jealousy or fear or agitation or restlessness, you name every one of them. Every one of them had a missing chaga part. There is a missing chaga somewhere. Example, fear. Fear arises when you are fixated about your well-being, your interests, your safety, your peace of mind, your happiness, whatever you name it, it's about you. So the part of you that says, it's okay, I don't mind. It's, it's fine. I'm not afraid because I've given this up, given this up. 
given peace of mind, given preferences, given everything up, what is there to fear? They say fear for my life because it's very instinctive to want to live. So you look at the Arahans, right? They who have given up everything, they are not even afraid to die. Maha Moggallana was going, he knew the assassins were coming in to take his life. He knew there is no avoiding, so he let it go. And he let them kill him. Because there, he knows it is, there is no avoiding. So you have at the highest level of practice, they give up what is most dear to all beings, which is life. They can give it up, okay? And it goes on. What, else, what, what other suggestions do you have? Uh, I don't know. What kind of, what kind of akusala is not obviously related to chaga? Pride? Pride? Pride is very uh, con, uh, con, uh, arrogance. Right? What has that got to do with chaga? You are upholding your own, your perception of face. You are holding on to the sense of, I am entitled to this. It should be like that for me. So there is a view about yourself that you uphold dearly. You can let that go, the pride drops. The conceit will drop. But when, as long as we hold on to the us and our sense of what it means, your view about us, then the pride stays. Okay? It goes on. Now, I put five of them together. An exemplary lay follower would want to Okay, uh, see the monk, hear the good Dhamma, retain in mind the teachings he had heard, examine the meaning of the teaching that had been retained in mind, practice in accordance with the Dhamma after he had understood meaning and Dhamma. These five conditions of practice. Buddha is saying that an exemplary follower actually will want to do these five. See, which is a Sangha, you see a practitioner to hear the Dhamma. But the part three, four and five, retain in mind the teachings he had heard. This part, maybe, many of us may fail. So we go for Dhamma talk, we listen, we rejoice, we go home, we forget. Cannot. Some part you must remember because you can only reflect on what you can remember. What you have forgotten is not part of the repertoire, you know, the, the reservoir of things to, to reflect. So number three, make an effort to remember what you have heard. And over here, we are not even saying remember correctly. Just remember. Sometimes the Buddha will say, remember correctly, accurately. Okay? So here, retain in mind the teaching he has heard. And look at the next slide. Examine the meaning of the teaching. So whatever that you have learned, whatever that you have heard, 
you want to reflect, dissect, dissect, digest. Without step number four, examining it, without doing that, it is very difficult to do number five. Because number five is application. You will apply what you understand. And everyone builds on the, the previous one. So you must remember, so you can, re, you, you can reflect and you can dissect and, re, and, and examine. Then you can apply. That's how it flows. Collectively, collectively, they are synergistic. Synergistic. What does that mean? You learn from the teacher, you hear the Dhamma, you apply in accordance with what you understand, and you look at the monks who are doing it, or the practitioners who are doing it, they are the ones who will guide you on the process. Remember what I said earlier on, you reflect, you observe, then you don't understand what it means. Right? Who is going to explain it to you? If you don't understand what it means, you either got to figure it out for yourself, or you go back to the Dhamma, the books, the Buddha's words left behind in the sutta, and you see whether you can find a correlation, or you go to the Sangha. So all three, from the teacher came the teaching, came the practitioners. All three come together as a force for our practice. Our gratitude must be to all three, not enough to depend on one. It has to be all three. Never stop at only Buddha. I know you love the Buddha. But without understanding what he had taught and applying it in your life and consulting people who had done it before, without doing that, Buddha also don't love you. He will say, what are you doing? I have taught you all these things. It is a triple gem. Go and refer to all three. Okay? If you were to worse, you only have the third one, practitioner, or, or, and, but you have no Dhamma, and your Buddha is, okay, he's great, he's there. If you do it like this, it's even worse. Because then you're depending on just one person to get it right for you. Right or wrong, you don't have the Dhamma, you don't know. So you must always, always do your own personal reference. Personally, I would advise everyone to really look at the suttas, the discourses in the Pali Canon because that's where the Buddha's words are captured. You literally would hear from him. Maybe in your language, but it came from him. You read enough, you can even spot which are the ones who are older him or the younger him. You, you can actually be able to tease out a bit of the timeline. You get to know the Buddha through the ages, through his age. You do this right, the triple gem collectively have the power to completely change the way you think, how you behave, what you prioritize. You, 
what you believe to be you, mind and behavior and words, gets transformed completely. And if you have all the eight traits, remember, accomplished in faith, accomplished in virtuous behavior, accomplished in generosity, and these five, you have all eight. As a lay person, you are still the happiest luck. Enjoy yourself. It's a lovely life. This life, it's a lovely life. To be able to cultivate these eight makes you a happy person. Immeasurable bliss and happiness. Okay? Now, earlier on... Oh, yeah, I forgot this one. Being a lay person does not mean you can remain ignorant of the ma. I felt I had to like put this there because some of us actually think that it's good enough to go and take three refuges and that's it. Later on, when I retire, then we, we learn the ma. And I'll say to you, really? What did the Buddha talk about? say about mortality? Buddha explained that we should be aware that you cannot take for granted you will live until retirement, collect CPF. Cannot, cannot assume that that will happen. What if you got cut short? Then what? You do not put these things to chance. I, 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 I gave this cute little example. Let me ask you this. Huh? Your teacher, let's say you're in school, your children, your kids are in school, and you know that one day uh, the teacher told the kids, okay, I'm going to give you a, I'm going to spring a test on you. Huh? What did they call that? Uh, a surprise test. I'm going to spring a surprise test on you. The marks will be 50% go into your final, final examination score. And then the kids come home and say, Mommy, Mommy, my teacher said we're going to have a surprise test and the marks will be 50% of the final score. What would you say to your kid? Hey, you better practice, leh. Better go and read through your thing, you know, prepare for the test that may come tomorrow. Who knows when it will come? Then the kids say, don't know, don't care, don't worry. When it comes, we will do it. Then your reply is, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It shouldn't be, right? Your reply is going to be, no, you don't know when it will come. What do you mean you are just going to hang around, do nothing and wait for the thing to come? So for something like a test, which is only 50% of the marks at the end of the day, you tell your kids, be prepared, be prepared, be prepared for the day that may come tomorrow. This is not life and death. Eh? On life and death matter, when you really don't know when the test will come, we are so sure it won't come. And we are so sure no need to prepare. Don't worry. Can you see that disconnect? The logic doesn't flow. So no. Even as lay people, we must do our part to be prepared for the unexpected test, the unexpected end. Because we really don't know when it will come. Okay, earlier on, remember what Mahanama asked the Buddha? He asked, how do we 
as lay people, practice in such a way that is good for ourselves and good for others. I know, some of us are not paying very good attention to that. This is a very important point. I tell you why. Many of us who are parents have children that we wish they will also follow us into the Dhamma, right? So we say, yeah, but we, I, I, I want to, eh? I want them to learn, eh? but they don't want to learn. Or we have loved ones who are not in the Dhamma with you, and we say, we want them to learn, we want them to understand. So it's not my fault. I tried my best, eh? it's not my fault. Here the Buddha shows you how. The point here is how it's done. How do you do it such that you are doing it for yourself and others will also do it with you? I said here the key principle of Buddhist cultivation is always about your own welfare and others, right? That of others. You understand that. How do you encourage others? Two parts to it. Number one, you do not nag them. Do not stand there and nag them and say, come follow me to the class. Come do this with me. You must do this. This is good for you. First, we don't do it like that. We do not proselytize. We do not go around and do it. You must do it. But you look at the way the Buddha said, accomplished. Accomplished in the eight qualities, the eight that he talked about. Accomplished means you yourself comes in with understanding and practice. You understand the Dhamma, you honour the Dhamma by walking, upholding wholesomeness. Fundamentally, you are what people will call a good and wise person. Decent, this person is a decent fellow, very nice guy and wise. If you carry that profile, oops, I went back. If you carry that profile, if you are of that character, people will follow. So, in effect, you are leading by example. Do you understand? This part is important to bear in mind. You can't force children, parents especially, siblings, to believe in you because what you're saying when you say follow me it's good for you you are telling people to believe in you but if in your daily life they are not very impressed why would they believe in you so before you can influence anyone you must first make sure that you are accomplished okay so when you are accomplished then you can encourage others because if they were to ever have that dukkha, that pain, the agitation, they're going to sit next to you and say, where have I gone wrong? Why is my life like this? Why am I feeling all these problems? And that's when you can help. That's when you can share. People come to you, they ask for help, and they will only come to you if looking at you, they see you as peaceful and happy, and wholesome, meaning you are a source of inspiration. You are not a source of distraction or pain. 
but of refuge. And then they will come to you. Okay? So I say, lead and inspire another by example. Okay. Oops, I went. Okay. This is called, this is called your checklist test. There are only two types of followers. You are nominal Buddhist or you are an exemplary, a good lay supporter, lay follower. Okay? So what are you? You go through the list yourself, huh? What's a nominal Buddhist? I'm pretty sure you can come up with even more features, but I highlight a few that I think are important for me to explain. Number one, the nominal Buddhist focuses on identity. I'm a Buddhist. You are not. This is identity. Form and external trappings and expression means how you bow, where you bow, take the front seat and bow, that kind of thing, you know. Do you bow in this way or that way? That you are very anxious. The point is you are anxious about expressions. Why do I say this is not necessary? Because, look, even in the time of the Buddha, you will come across many stanzas where people visiting the Buddha do whatever they want. This is the living Buddha at his, in life, in, in life, and possibly at his prime for years. And people will go to him and, hi Buddha, or actually they will call him Bante, they will call him Bante, teacher. Hi teacher, I am so and so from where and where. Yo, and that's it. Some, very respectful, they will bow. Okay, the bowing came from the practice long ago. So the ones who are most grateful and very inspired by him, they will bow. But there were so many more who were not inspired or who were new to, the, to him and they don't really know him and they will come and they will check him out because they were curious about him. The first celebrity monk was the Buddha. Okay? And they will come and they will visit him and they will hang around and they don't ask for appointment, huh? There were many instances where they would come and they would see a monk and say, oh, Bante, Bante, where is a Buddha? Or where is Bante? And they say, okay, third door on the right, huh? over there, you go there, you knock, knock, knock. And he will answer. Oh no, actually, they don't knock. They will go there and go, <coughs> and then he will open the door. So it's just like that. Huh? All, all this, no strict, rigid ritual, none. Rituals are for people to see, maybe, sometimes. You don't even know why you're doing it, but if everybody's doing it, I better do. Otherwise, they all say I'm not sincere. Huh? Then this thing, transactional relationship with the Buddha. Perhaps, perhaps there is a part, you don't, because you don't know the Dhamma, people say here very ling, I go there. People say here very ling, I also go there. So maybe there is a part of you that says, I have fear, I hope the God, Buddha, will help. So if I were to be very sincere, he will help me. You may have this, you may have this kind of ideas. If you have this kind of ideas, that's not in the canon. This is not how he taught the Dhamma. So this is, the point I want to make is not to say you, you shouldn't do it. 
is to tell you that in the canon, in his teaching, it was not like that. So if you see that I want to learn from him, then I think it should be to learn it the way he taught, learn it the way he had taught the people of the day. And in that way, perhaps we'll feel closer to the teacher. Okay? Notion of moralities, focus on do's and don'ts. So you see, you have people saying, if I were to do this, do I breach the precept? Fixation about breaching. You know? If I were to do this, is that breaking precept? If I were to do that, is that breaking precept? There is fear there. The reason why there is always this, am I breaking the precept? If I, if I tweak it like this or I tweak it like that, actually it's because there is fear. The fear may cause us to forget why the precepts, the purpose of the precepts. The key purpose of the precept is really to restrain strong acusular behaviour. And if you were driven by acusular motivation, sometimes if you... I am not following the letter, I'm following the spirit, the essence of the teaching, and you say, actually, I feel okay. I feel okay. Then so be it. You feel okay. No need to be fixated about, yes, yes, but, but is this five degree off or four degree right? Where, where is that line? If you're fixated on the line, you don't understand the drivers. When you understand the drivers, you will be self-checked far more than the precept. The self-checking is way more than the precepts, okay? Blindly attached to teachers, monastic, yeah, well, this is from personal experience, people that I've seen and followers I've seen where they don't know the Dhamma, they don't know Buddha. I mean, Buddha for them may be just a statue, but they know individuals. The individuals that they identify as someone they they want to learn from and they are absolutely devoted to that but they don't know the Dhamma so you have individuals as long as you don't know the Dhamma but you're attached to an individual this is a category it falls into if you look at the Kalama Sutta in the Kalama Sutta the number 10 point said I do not go by the teaching of a teacher with this perception that he is my teacher and that's it. For you, that's good enough. He said anything, I do everything. Buddha said, that alone is not good enough. That is not a source of true knowledge. Something to bear in mind. So, <clears throat> if you say, eh, I got none of the above. Okay, very good. You're not a nominal Buddhist. Let's see if you are the exemplary follower. <clears throat> has right understanding of teaching, likely forged from a personal experience. <clears throat> right understanding of teaching means to say, you know the Four Noble Truths, you know the Eightfold Path, you understand the three characteristics, tilakana, impermanence, dukkha, anatta, you, you understand all these. And you have listened to talks, 
there are many parts of the talks that resonate with you. You can feel it. You understand it. And it, as I said, lightly forged from personal experience, it means there are certain parts of the Dhamma that you have personally witnessed. Then, you are less likely to focus on identity and form, but more on the teaching. Okay? Because of that, there is, because of your experience, there is unwavering confidence. Because of your experience, it is not just faith. It is gratitude, the deepest of respect. Okay? In order to have that respect and that absolute faith, really has to sit on right understanding. It doesn't have to be extensive, but there has to be enough for you to say, I know what he taught, or I know, I know enough of what he taught to want to follow this teaching. Okay? You see this one about morality? You are committed because you understand where the Buddha was coming from with regards to morality, the, teach, the teachings of morality. It's not to hurt anyone. No hurt, not harm, not cause pain to anyone. So is it going to be only the five precepts? No, it's going to be a lot more. But it's all self-restraint. Self not because the Buddha said so, just, just because the Buddha said so, I do it. It's also because I understand why I cannot do it like that. Why I shouldn't scold, why I, I shouldn't be gossiping and harming people in the process. I shouldn't be doing all these things. You know, okay? The final point is you also understand what kind of sacrifice, determination, what kind of qualities led to these Sangha practitioners upholding the Dhamma to the, at the highest level? You understand what kind of determination leads to this type of practice. And for that, you are always grateful because it is through them that you see the Dhamma in operation. You know you need these Sangha members to keep the Dhamma teaching alive and going. So your gratitude, your respect is profound, deeply profound. So it's not because he wears a robe and you chong ah, but really because you see in the practice, in his understanding, and then you chong, so that he will continue to teach and guide the Dhamma, in the Dhamma, okay? Question. Thank you, Sis Sylvia. Uh, we have a few questions. Time is running out. How does one practice such that chaga is not limited? That is, practicing chaga to be freely generous, open-handed, and not conditional. Thank you. Our mind talks and our mind judges. The more the mind talks and the more the mind judges, the less free is charter. I repeat, uh, the more the mind talks and the more the mind judges, 
it will talk first, it will construct, it will think, it will reflect. Should I, should I not? Do I do this, do I not do this? If your mind starts to say a lot of that, should I, should I not, it has a lot of consideration. So the more it talks, the more it will be judging. Are they worthy? Should I be doing this? Why are they like this? And you go on, right? So when the mind talks and the mind judges, that's when the chaga will shrivel up. So you want to practice to a point where chaga is very spontaneous, very easy, very, very free and, and giving. You want to practice to that level, the mind must learn to not talk so much. Very instinctively, you perceive, you give. You perceive a need, you go. Your compassion is motivated, you serve. Make it spontaneous, okay? Yeah. Thank you, Cecilia. Another question. A Pacheka Buddha or Silent Buddha does not go all out to preach and encourage others to learn the Dhamma and practice meditation. Is it because he has total wisdom but lack compassion? No, no. No, you see, in order to get to a point where you can teach and you have following, there must be accumulated merits of a different time. So the individual who eventually becomes the Samasambuddha would have accumulated immeasurable merits. Immeasurable. You know the story of Devadatta, right? And we all know from uh, canonical... Uh, I'm not sure whether it's commentary. I, I, honestly, I'm not sure where, where the information comes from, but we're very familiar with this idea that Devadatta, after suffering for, after allowing his unwholesome karma to exhaust, exhaust themselves, he will return, reborn as a human, and as a human, he will become a Pachika Buddha at some point. But he's only a Pachika Buddha. And that's because you know what Devadatta had done. He had made mistakes, serious mistakes. He had also done tremendous good. He had, he had cultivated well. Because of his cultivation, his spiritual cultivation, a day will come when he will become, he will be enlightened. But because of the unwholesome deeds that he had performed, when that happened, when that enlightenment happened, he wouldn't have that enough of the merits to become a Samasambuddha. So, we all have all kinds, we have done all kinds of things. We don't know. I mean, many lives, many deeds later, all kinds of baggage in our collection. Who is to know what will happen? So, we may be able to taste the Dhamma and realize Nibbana at some point, but we too don't have what it takes to become a Samasambuddha. You see what I'm saying? So these things about Samasambuddha relative to all the other uh, attainments, it's really the individual's practice. Okay? When the person is fully enlightened, there is no, there is no such thing as lacking in compassion. Compassion is also complete. It's also pure. The, because enlightenment, wisdom, 
through enlightenment means a complete realization of how beings come about and why dukkha becomes a defining feature in beings' life. There's an absolute understanding of that. Compassion then is inevitable, invariable. Okay? Thank you. Related to that, someone asked, uh, one of Buddha's qualities, as you mentioned, is the ability to read and train any beings to the right path. Among them were the serial killer and hunters, etc. Could you please explain as to why he was unable to teach Ajatasattu and Devadatta to restrain the unwholesome instinct of their minds? You forgot that phrase. It wasn't to train everyone, it's to train tameable. The exact description was to tame tameable beings. Why tameable? Because Buddha is not foisting his ideas and, and power on people. Individuals have their choices. They make choices. This notion of karma. And if their choices were gearing towards unwholesome, it means they lack the wisdom to begin with. They lack that wisdom to see for themselves the critical importance of a practice for that taste of Nibbana. He, they lack that, so they can't. And in the case of Ajatasattu, he even killed his father before he, he, he went before the Buddha. He was never Buddha's disciple until it was too late. And Buddha himself said, had Ajatasattu not killed his father, not murdered his father, when they had that session, Captured, uh, captured in Samanya Palasutta. If when Ajatasattu went before the Buddha and had that conversation about practice, ascetic practice, he would have entered the stream. But because he killed his father, the mind was, would never be able to settle to a point where he can hear the Dhamma properly. So it's really the individual's merits. Okay? Thank you. From the same person, in respect of Four Noble Truths, could you please elaborate more about the Third Noble Truth of Cessation of Suffering? And could you refer me a particular sutta in the Nikayas that explain the cessation of suffering in depth? You know, I would advise you to carefully examine Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta first. And I've given a talk on that, which I think you, you can find online. Just say, turning of the wheel of truth, so we'll be, that, that should appear, the talk should appear. And there are many teachers who talk about Dhamma Chakra, Pawatana Sutta. So let's just take that first, because this is not a talk on the noble truths and the cessation of Dukkha. And it will not do the talk justice to have a very crips and short explanation. Okay? So I would advise that you consider just going through the talk first, take a look at that, and then if there is a demand from BF, we can always revisit Dhamma Chakra 
or revisit the suitors that talk about that. Okay? Um, two last questions. What if a good practitioner praises a good bante, but I can't resonate with his talks? The talk is whose talk? I think the bante's talk. The bante's talk. talk. Yeah. Oh, then don't, I mean, it's, it's okay. Don't, don't worry about that. We all have our own uh, habits of learning. We, we, we have our own little, uh, you know, that some people, in the way that they talk, resonates with us, and then in, in some others, it doesn't. Because we all have our own little quirks and ways of learning. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, the main teacher is still the Buddha, and everyone else flowing from there, we are explaining or sharing our understanding of his teaching. So what I would strongly advise you to do, if you're serious about wanting to understand the Dhamma, is you want to invest in reading, checking out the Sutta. Today you have a lot of free suttas online in Sutta Central or in Access to Insight. These are the two websites that contain a lot of teaching for free. And if you, if you say, oh, yeah, I like Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, in Sutta Central, for many of the Sutta, there is actually a Bhikkhu Bodhi translation alongside Ajahn Sujato's translation. You can also find them there. Invest in that, read the Sutta, then you go listen to the different teachers, and the ones that make the most reasonable sense, sounds good, you can really uh, relate to that, continue to follow that. But don't be, the point is don't be attached to any one individual. We are all practitioners. We are all sharers. There are many good teachers out there. You can listen to different talks and really enjoy the spectrum. All the good teachers will say very similar things in pretty similar ways. Or maybe the style, stylistically a bit different. But the message, the teaching will be the same. If for whatever reason you notice that the teaching is inconsistent with what others are saying, then when you go and look at the sutta, you look at the sutta and you look at, listen to the teaching and say, also not consistent, then this teacher you must put aside. Because not consistent with the teaching in the sutta, not consistent with what others say, be careful. Buddha will say, take it, uh, take it and put it aside, but don't, don't embrace it. Don't go and criticize, criticize, criticize. You also don't want to do that. Okay? We're not in any position to criticize. We just say, this one I won't follow. I don't understand. It's not consistent with what I've understood. I will let it be. Okay? I think uh, you may have partly answered this question. There are Buddhists who have absolute faith in famous monks. Uh, is attachment to famous monks who are eloquent at preaching the Dharma a hindrance to spiritual progress? How do we detect false insincere monks since we do not have the power to perceive their spiritual attainment? The, okay, there was also another talk called What is a Saprisa? What is a Saprisa? Saprisa means a, a well-accomplished person in the Dhamma, a good person in the Dhamma, right? So 
There, that I have the details, a lot of details. But here I'll do a summary. You remember what the Buddha qualities of the nine qualities, one of them was Vidya Charana, wisdom and conduct. Some things you can see, wisdom you may not, but what he says, how he acts, how he treats people, whether or not there is anger or not, all these you can see for yourself because the mind you can't tell, but the expressions of what's in the mind, whether through words or action, that is an external expression of what's in the mind. That you can tell, you can see. So if you witness for yourself show of anger, don't make excuses. The problem for many of us is we make excuses for famous and respected and celebrity and so on and so forth. We make excuses. We say, oh, it's a bad day. Oh, uh, well, you know, that person is misbehaving. Something like that. You can make excuses, but you must know that when you are making excuses for bad behaviour, you are affecting your own judgement. Learn to be objective and just witness as is and see for yourself. Then you say, oh, but I don't associate very much with the, the monks. And so I don't really know. Fine, I understand that. Just know that the Buddha himself had taught. Buddha taught King Pasinadi. Because Pasinadi was going around. Pasinadi King was this devoted practitioner, uh, sorry, devoted supporter of Buddha. He's always going to Buddha and have his chat, sometimes twice a day. That's why he would go to the Buddha and say, sorry, I, can't, I only have time to do one visit today. Okay, he really enjoys his, his visit. So much so that in the, in the Nikaya, there was actually a, a section on him, Pasinadi's conversation with Buddha. It's called Kosalan Samyutta, something like that. So, what does it mean? Well, in one of his first meetings with the Buddha, he saw some ascetics walking by and he told Buddha, you wait, ah. ran over, pay respect, and then came back and said, this ascetic is very good. And Buddha said, you have to spend more time with people. Learn to see, to, you, when you associate with them a bit more, then you can see for yourself. What is that training? Is that training? You know, are there restraints and so on and so forth? So the point, that the, the takeaway from this conversation is, you, you, yes, we can't really tell. If you can tell from one conversation, you see him losing temper, you know, eh, this one has a problem. But if you never saw that, then you have to stick around and see a bit more. See for yourself a little bit more, witness for yourself the things they said, the things they do. See for yourself. Don't go by hearsay. So that, that's one part of the little checklist you can have. One small thing is this. When you listen to a talk, and from your takeaway from the talk, doesn't give you a little bit of joy, doesn't give you, doesn't inspire you in any way, doesn't lift your spirit, nothing, nothing. It's like, I go see, then I finish my lecture, I go home, something like that, right? Then you can say that in this connection, you haven't been touched by the Dhamma. 
Minimally, you haven't been touched. It doesn't mean he was wrong. It means there is no re resonating. There isn't this chemistry. Then try again. If it still doesn't have, then don't have more. It means that from this person, can't quite learn from the person, right? This is stylistic. I, I, I'm not saying yes, correct June or not. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that in terms of style, in terms of res resonating, you don't feel the connection. So it's very hard. Um, normally, if you have this chemistry, it will click very fast. You listen and you say, ah, I love it. I got some takeaway. Something you hear gives you enough for you to apply, to reflect and to apply. Then that talk for you was a good talk because you had a takeaway. Okay, that's it. Uh, I think two more ca came in, but... Uh, I have to go soon. Yes. Um, there's, I have a friend who is doing very well in her meditation practice, but she lacks Dhamma knowledge. Hence, she's not aware of her uh, mindless speech. How do I, as a friend, advise her regarding the importance of Dhamma knowledge? If your friend can meditate but has a problem with speech, then my question is, what is she meditating and how is she meditating? Good meditation in accordance, right samadhi, in accordance with the practice, will lead to a more wholesome mind state. They may not be very elegant in how they talk, elegant in how they talk, but it shouldn't be unwholesome. If the person is not elegant, but also not, not meaning wholesome, the person is okay, there is nothing unwholesome in the speech, but not elegant, then the problem is not your friend, no. The problem may be you, 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 you are having some judging issues. But if the person, if your friend is neither elegant nor wholesome, then you may want to remind the friend about Eightfold Path. Eightfold Path means eight, nah, not diluted one, which is meditation. Sometimes it's actually not for you to be judging. This is also something to bear in mind. We should be concerned about our own practice and not about others' missteps. Because if you are focused on another's missteps, sometimes what arises in us is akusala agitation. Until we hit the point where we super kusala, super elevated in our mind, right? We may, we may not want to get ourselves caught up in other people's practice. No? Thank you, Sister Sylvia. Okay. This is something which has appeared week after week after week, really. Huh? And really, it is a reminder to everyone of the need to... Give something back to the Dhamma for what we have received, for the blessings that we have received. We want to give something back to the Dhamma, to the community. Okay? So it goes like this. If you had experienced joy listening to the Dhamma, 
do consider honouring our teacher by putting into practice his first teaching to the lay community. Bichaga, donate, help, give support of time and energy to a worthy charity or spiritual organisation of your choice. Be joyous in the giving. We must never take for granted the blessings that we have enjoyed in this life. As our forerunners had done it right by us, we must continue the good work for those who come after. May the Dhamma last long. May we continue to enjoy supportive conditions for learning and practice. And may we never deviate from the true teaching as long as life lasts. Thank you, Cecilia. Okay, let's uh, dedicate the merits uh, of this activity to all sentient beings. Etavata cha amhehi sampadang punya sampadang sabbe deva anumodantu sabbe sampati siddhya etavata cha amhehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabbe buta anumodantu Sabbe sampati siddhya Etta vata cha amhehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabbe satta anumodantu Sabbe sampati siddhya let us dedicate the merits to our departed relatives and friends. Idang menya tinang ho tu sukita hon tunya tayo. Idang menya tinang ho tu sukita hon tunya tayo. Idang menya tinang ho tu sukita hon tunya tayo. Let us pay respects to the Triple Gem. Arahang Sama Sambuddho Bhagawa Buddhang Bhagawantang Abhivademi Swakato Bhagawata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipano bhagavato sawaka sango sangang namami Sadu 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 